Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Mind Vine Podcast. We've got a great show. Yeah, I, I, I can't believe we're at four. I know we've done a number in a short period of time here <laughs> since we've been at the CMHA Mental Health for All conference. But um, when we did the first one in August, I wasn't sure that there would be a second one, let alone now we're in a fourth one. And we got a couple on the horizon as well. Right. So today for our fourth uh, episode of the Mindvine podcast, we're going to sit down and chat with Mara Grineau. She's the executive director of the Center for Suicide Prevention, which is based in Calgary, but they do apparently a lot, they do a lot of work outside of uh, Alberta and across uh, uh, Canada in terms of suicide prevention programs. Mm-hmm. And we have uh, uh, Stan catch Kutcher. Catch up with Dr. Stan Kutcher, who we've uh, certainly, our organization in Territories have a relationship with, with Dr. Kutcher on uh, curriculum. And... Uh, he's the uh, Sunlight Financial Chair for Adolescent Mental Health and at IWK Health Center, and and really one of the he's everywhere. He's all over the world. One of the hardest working men in, in show business and mental health, and and just a lot of good insight. Whenever we get a chance to catch up with with Dr. Kucher. And judging by our brief interaction with him this morning, uh, pretty passionate Jays fan. <laughs> yeah, frustrated Jays <laughs> yes, fan like, just like, uh, like the rest us of all. Us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, hopefully these guests, uh, this experience is not a frustrating one. Hopefully it's very enlightening. And uh, we're going to start with uh, Mara Grineau and, and, uh, and Dr. Kutcher, and then we'll be back. So we are pleased to have with us Mara Grineau, the executive director of the Center for Suicide Prevention. And Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you both very much for having me. This Thanks is for great. being here. So I know you're based out of Calgary, but your organization is uh, is not just specifically uh, based in Alberta. I know you offer programs across uh, uh, the country in some form or another. And you were talking about a bit of that today in your presentation at the conference, were you not? Yes, that's right. So the Center for Suicide Prevention is a branch of the Canadian Mental Health Association, though you can't tell from our name, but we are a branch under the Alberta Division. And in Alberta, we operate um, the Assist Workshop, which is a Living Works product, but came out of our organization originally. And uh, we run that and facilitate it throughout the province. But the workshops that we've developed, as well as all our information services, we offer across Canada, uh, some in the United States, and some around the world. Wow. So uh, we wanted, we were talking earlier about suicide, and we talked earlier about the, the Kids Help Phone survey. It showed the prevalence of of young people contemplating. There seems to be, and, I, and, and we're not clinicians by nature or anything, but there seems to be a real debate sometimes, even in the field, about not talking about suicide because it's going to give impressionable kids ideas as opposed to opening up the conversation. Even our background's media, you know, whenever there's a the suicide, the police don't report it or, you know, we kind of keep it hidden. I'm just curious from your perspective, what's the right balance of, of having this conversation with, with young people and, and parents and educators? So, I mean, you touch on a lot of really important points. What, maybe I'll start with the media. Sure. So the media are a key partner, and we need to have thoughtful um, 
responsible conversations and dialogue about suicide. Being silent about suicide is not going to stop suicide. Conversely, talking about it is not going to put the idea in somebody's head. If you ask someone directly, are you thinking of suicide, and they're not, the fact that you ask them is not going to now make them consider suicide. Right. It's not suggestible. Uh, however, a number of years ago, the Canadian Psychiatric Association, I'm sure as you both know, have established responsible media guidelines, and they're quite stringent. And the purpose behind that is very thought out, and it's all around contagion mm. or clusters. So while you can't incite suicide by asking, um, when somebody near you, close to you emotionally, dies by suicide, you are at greater risk. So whether that's a family member or a very close friend, uh, the, the best example to illustrate this, of course, is in our, unfortunately, in our indigenous communities, mm -hmm. where we see clusters often, where they'll, you know, we'll see one person die, and then in very short order, we'll see another person die, and so on. And, that, and that's because of their tight interconnectedness and the collective culture that they, that they are. So when the CPA established these guidelines, that's what they were trying to avoid. But what happens in practicality is the media then shy away because they don't want to do it wrong. They don't want to create any more damage and so then they don't report on it at all. And the silence isn't helping us either. Right. So what we really want to see in an ideal world is discussion like this. Open, thoughtful, considerate dialogue where we talk about suicide without glamorizing it or sensationalizing it. Right. Now, an interesting point because I wanted to talk about is the 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 really epidemic or the prevalence of suicide in our northern indigenous population like, and, and none of it and things like that. So I was just curious, because I, I think you have programs that are really geared to that specific population um, because often they're looking for homegrown solutions in, in their, within their own communities. What kind of things are you guys doing to sort of reach that population? So we do run information services where we do knowledge translation of all the primary research that there is out there and we put it out in easy to use uh, media, so everything from Twitter to webinars, workshops, toolkits, articles, um, and we try to cover the gamut uh, in terms of different populations and different demographics. When we look at our Inuit people or any of our Indigenous people, mm -hmm. the best, in our opinion, um, we're going to see the best results if the initiatives come from within. Okay. I mean, I've done several media interviews, many media interviews, where they say, what is the answer? You know what? Self-government is closer to the answer than anything that we can offer. We need, we need interdependence. We need to work together with our Indigenous people uh, as mainstream society. But, um, but we can't solve it for them. Right. Just the, touching on that, the epidemic that's going on in northern communities, I think if people realized the issues, if they fully realized the issues that were happening in those communities, they'd be appalled. Uh, and it would be, it would almost be like a, a state of national emergency if they really understood the, the issues these people are facing. So what as so-called mainstream society is our responsibility in kind of helping them through this or coming up, uh, creating solutions to help this population? Well, I think you've nailed it. It's awareness and understanding. I mean, education is how we see transformational change. We don't know what we don't know. And I don't think people, I think you're right when we say the general population has no idea the living conditions or the social determinants that these people are facing. I mean, we may think, oh, they live up north and it's so, you know, remote and cold. Well, that that's not the issue. <laughs> that's not the issue. Yeah. And when we look at... Um, 
you know, the colonization and the impacts intergenerationally uh, on our indigenous people, I think people can can step back and, and maybe get a, a gain a bigger perspective. So I think it's it, it's it's beholden on all of us as Canadians to learn our history, not just the history that we were taught in school. Find out really what's going on, and you know it's an awesome opportunity for the media to tell that story. And I think about the different ways that we're hearing the story more and more through the Truth and Reconciliation. Um, report or a commission. Uh, we're hearing lots of stories come out of that. But um, we're also hearing uh, stories from, from people themselves. And, and it's the voices of the Indigenous people themselves that are going to teach us. And I think of Joseph Boyden, who's a Canadian author. Um, and last year he worked together with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet and they produced a ballet to show the impact of residential school, but also gave us all um, a, a larger history lesson, I think a broader history lesson than anything we would have learned mm -hmm. in social studies. And when we look at the sort of the prevalence of suicide, um, even just in Ontario or nationally, like I, I look at something that if it was an infectious disease, like when SARS came, how much resources and everything we poured into that that killed a very small, but we look at how many young people die each year. Um, what do you think is the greatest barrier to us to moving? You know, when you look at these studies that say one in five contemplated suicide or had actually, a, you know, a half of them may have had a, a plan, right, of what they were going to do. What do we need to do? What is the biggest barrier facing us sort of changing that tide, do you think, from your perspective? Unfortunately, I think the biggest barrier remains to be stigma. Um, you're right, people do not know the rate of suicide in this country. So uh, one story that I like to tell to illustrate it um, is if you imagine a 747 flying, it crashes, everyone on board dies. The next month it happens again. The next month it happens again. It happens every month for an entire year. That's how many Canadians die by suicide every year. It's nearly 4,000. Uh, it's the second leading cause of death amongst our youth after car collisions. And it's been like that for years. It's yeah. been like that for years. Uh, this is not new and uh, it's, not, it's not going away. And it's not going to go away until we have a coordinated response and a coordinated approach. And there aren't a lot of best practices in suicide prevention. Suicide's complex. People are complex. So no two people's experiences are the same. But we do know uh, that there are four big buckets, if you will, of best practices that if we, were, if we implement all of them together, then we will start to impact the rate. So open and easy access to mental health care, responsible media reporting like this, reduce access to lethal means, make it harder for people to access things that can kill themselves. And the fourth one is education. And with education, I would include research and surveillance as well. But people have to have awareness. They have to know what's going on. We have to collect the data. We have to be able to have our own studies. Our keynotes this morning talked about how we're always looking to the United States for our research because we don't publish enough here. We need more information here. And when we coordinate and we bring all of those best practices together, that's when we're going to start to see an impact. But if we only do one thing, like for instance, if we open up mental health care, but we don't restrict access to lethal means, we're just gonna get displacement and we're gonna get one pushing the other. So we need to really bring it all together in an interwoven approach. Right. When you mentioned media, sorry, they, um, I think even beyond sort of the, the traditional media, when I think of TV and, and even my own kids and, and the stigma, they, they get to them before we get a chance to get to them, you know, because of we don't really have proper curriculum. So, the shows that they watch that talk about 
mental health or even for our standpoint, a, a hospital that provides mental health care are usually very dark and disturbing. And so we're almost behind the eight ball with kids because I kind of put myself in their mindset and say, boy, if that's what it looks like and that's the care you get based on movies and TV, I don't want to talk about it. And that's, you know, how do we, how do we change that when, when, especially when I guess TVs and, and they're about making money and sensationalism and how do we, how do we get to kids younger so that's not their perception of, of help and mental health and mental illness? I don't think there are any easy answers. I'm asking. To be honest. <laughs> all right, asking the impossible I mean, question. All, yeah, I know. But I know, I mean, I'm yeah. a parent too. And I just think, you know, the more we're willing to have the conversation at home, the more we're willing to have the conversation in our schools, and the more kids grow up. I mean, I think kids are growing up now, yes, exposed to far more stuff, of course. I mean, they've got the world in their pocket on their, you know, lovely uh, smartphone. But at the same time, they're not as afraid to discuss things that I think we never would talk about when we were kids. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, we have to remember, transformational change takes a good 10 years. Think about, uh, you know, how many of us had car seats when we were infants, mm -hmm. and yet, how many car seats did we own for our children? Mm -hmm. uh, my kids get in the car, I might be moving the car from the front of the house to the, to the garage, they put on their seatbelts. It doesn't occur to them, to, they don't even notice, they just sit down and put it on. Um, in the session, I talked about CPR. Not that long ago, we really thought if you were in cardiac arrest and there's no cardiologist around, there's that's nothing it. we can do. We know that's not true. How many of us can do CPR? How many of us can use a defibrillator? Even though there's all the sensationalism, I think we can get ahead of it. And I think with open and honest dialogue, uh, I, I think kids are more receptive today than, than we were as kids. Yeah, I agree. Con conceding the fact that we, we still have a long way to go, and not with, just with suicide alone, but mental illness in general, um, we have come a long way in a short period of time. And I, and I wonder, like, in your work, are you seeing people more receptive to the education, to the messages, to, to the work that you're doing? Yes, absolutely. Um, this is mental health's time. It absolutely is. We've seen more momentum in mental health in the last couple of years than we have ever. And suicide is just a tiny bit behind. <laughs> um, but, it, but absolutely, people are far more receptive and more willing to have a conversation. Uh, People are understanding, research will tell us that for every suicide death, we lose that person, but also the 20 people closest to that person are also taken down. Mm -hmm. And people are understanding the impact. We used to talk to workplace and they would say, oh, we don't want to get in involved in suicide prevention because we don't want to be liable. They don't realize that if somebody on your team dies, the whole team is affected. And workplace is starting to come to the table now. They're starting to understand that that is a reality. Yeah. I'm from Calgary. It's no secret what's going on out there right now. Thousands of people have lost their jobs in, in the last couple of years. And uh, when things are flying high, it's very difficult to get the oil and gas companies to the table to talk about mental health. Yeah. When things are like this, they are more open and receptive. Of course, they have no training budgets, so it's a little bit of a yeah. catch-22. Yeah. Yeah. But we're able to have the conversation. And, and yes, I would say it's very slow. We have lots of work to do, but we are seeing more action now than we ever have. That's great. Well, hopefully it keeps going. I know uh, places like this, is always it's always a great place to share ideas and, and education. And, and uh, it was great chatting with you today. Yeah, it was a thank pleasure. You thank you for taking the time to join us. We appreciate well, thank it. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, you both for having me and for having this thoughtful open dialogue. Thanks very much. Thank Thanks. You. Thank you very much.
my pleasure. One of my favorite people in mental health. I, I learn something every time you speak. Fortunately, it's hard to find you. You're so busy. You're everywhere. It's great but, to be here, man. Um, so Stan Kutcher, I have to look because your title's so long. I know Don't you're Sun Life Financial Chair for Adolescent Mental Health. Also the director of World Health Organization, collaborating care, mental health policy, and training at Dalhousie University and the IWK Health Center, and one of the smartest people in this field. Um, and I think we've, you're we've had the pleasure. You're well, I am. I hope, I hope, I hope my mother's listening <laughs> to this because <laughs> well, she would like this. Well, Daryl's mother actually drives our, our podcast. Yeah, she's our one fan. She, right. Yeah. So no, but it's a pleasure to have you. Um, and we've worked. Our Ontario Shores has yeah. worked with you, and and so. Um, I thought what today we we talk a little bit about um, is we've talked to some people about adolescent mental health um, and sort of I'd like to start with the curriculum piece because I know you've done a lot of work on curriculum and and it's it's been adopted but how do we get this this is something that every school should have like how do we get this even from a young age to build mental health as part of the education system at an early age. Yeah, I think that that's a fundamental challenge. First, let me say that we, we really need to focus at creating what we call integrated health for kids. And that means that we shouldn't separate mental health from the rest of health. I mean, what's good for your bicep is good for your brain. Mm -hmm. and, and yet we've, we've come at it from two different directions. And we expect the stigma to go away. Well, we have to integrate them together. So when we're talking about mental health, we have to be talking about what's good for your health and for your mental health at the same time. And then the second thing that we really need to do is we have to integrate, not just in health, but we have to integrate across the systems that serve kids. Mm -hmm. and, and the healthcare system serves kids. The education system serves kids. Now, we are really bad at getting access to mental health care in the healthcare system but the education system is really good at getting access to education. So you know, when I think about it for like two seconds, what we have to do if we want really good integrated care is not put up community care clinics. We have to integrate mental health into educational systems, mm. all right? With health, health and mental health into educational systems. Every educational system already has health courses. The challenge is how can you put into those courses curriculum that actually we have good evidence for makes a difference as opposed to curriculum resources, we have no idea if they work or not. Right. And then the second thing is how can we prepare the system to be able to identify, triage, and support and refer kids who are more likely to have a mental disorder than having a bad hair day. So those are our two challenges. So, so what are the, I mean, you've had success in, in certain areas, certain provinces more than those. What seems to be the barrier in, in, in the school systems in different provinces to get to make this part of their... their well, I don't want to talk about one province in general. No, and, no, and, but just and, generally. And so, things yeah. out. But I think that there are a couple of different things. Number one is because health and education are both provincial responsibilities, many provinces, not many, some provinces actually think that they own everything and they're not gonna do it unless it was made here. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just nonsense because kids are the same all across the country right. and things that are done in one part of the country can be actually easily transported into other parts of the country and they'll have the same effect. We know that, we, in fact, in our work we've demonstrated it. If you do it in Calgary, if you do it in Kamloops, if you do it in the Kawarthas, you get the same results, right. okay? So it's part of this hubris 
that the pro some provinces have. The second thing is, is that there really is not a very strong commitment. There's lip service. This is going to sound harsh, but I think it's true. That there's lip service to using evidence, but there's not a lot of commitment to using evidence. So here are some resources that have unbelievably solid evidence for their impact, both on students and teachers. And here are resources that have no evidence whatsoever. And very often, schools use the ones that have no evidence whatsoever. And they are willing to pay a lot of money for things we have absolutely no idea if it works or not. And sometimes they're willing to pay a lot of money for things that don't work. Right. So the, the quality of the decision making is a, is a challenge. And then the other thing is that um, sometimes people just don't know about it. So, you know, uh, education systems are multi-layered, multifaceted. What goes on in a single school, what goes on in a school board or district, what goes on at the ministry level are often very disconnected one from the other. Mm -hmm. So we can have a school or a school board embracing best evidence interventions and using them and the ministry being completely unaware. We can have the ministry people saying, oh, look, this is fantastic, let's do it, and the schools and the school boards say, no, thank you very much. So I, th there's multiple levels of challenges. Right. The, the numbers out there around adolescent mental health and suicide are, are astounding. I mean, and they're not new. It's, they've been around for years. We were just talking earlier about uh, suicide and the second leading cause among young people. That's been a stat. It's been around for a very long time. What's it going to take to get everybody rowing the boat in the same direction? I wish I knew the answer to that question. Uh, I think a couple of things have to happen. One is that people have to put their egos aside and say, gosh, you know, the stuff that people are doing in BC are really good and maybe we can use them in Ontario. Or the things that are happening in Newfoundland are fantastic, maybe we should use them in Quebec. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, that's, that's really, yeah. really important. I think what we really also need is uh, an independent, unbiased, and uh, un uninterested, I want to stress uninterested, um, resource in the country that will provide uh, a place for all this information to be easily collated and made available. Mm -hmm. Because one of the big challenges is people finding out from where do you go to find out what's the best mental health literacy intervention for grade nine? What is the best social emotional learning program for grade three? What's the best um, uh, gatekeeper training model for suicide prevention that can be used in Ojibwe Cree populations? Okay? So, and there are answers to those questions, but where do you go? The, the, the schools um, are just overwhelmed by people marketing them stuff. Uh, and, and they have a hard time differentiating what is an effective and safe intervention from one that is not effective and may not even be safe because the marketing is so slick and the marketing is so fantastic. So I also think that uh, there is an important role for the federal government here. And the federal government regulates uh, medications and I've heard that the federal government is going to start doing some regulatory work on over-the-counter medications. But there are an awful lot of interventions which are psychological interventions or social interventions which are being sold as health improvement interventions for which there is absolutely no regulation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So people haven't got a clue. It, it's really a wild, wild west of marketing and it's buyer beware. So I think at a lot of different levels that I think there's things that we can do. There's, and, and it's funny, we all, we've all come together to this conference to, to learn from each other, but we even see that in the, in the health, mental health care system is this fragmented um, 
there's so many organizations doing <laughs> so many different things. The concept of collaboration is still a new one in it's mental still, health. It's still, and yet, you know, often when you try to collaborate, everyone's kind of guarding their turf. And, and, and do you think mental health system, you look at things like Cancer Care Ontario and things where it's a, a model, a system model, do you think we'll ever get there with mental health that all these agencies can, can look at what's best for the, for the person at the end as opposed to sort of protecting what they've got. Yeah, I'm going to say some things that people are going to get upset about that's now, okay. but that's okay. It'll drive the numbers <laughs> up. Yeah. So, so one, of the, one of the things that I see around the mental health non-system, it's not a system, is that to many people, collaboration means do it my way and don't touch my budget. Mm -hmm. um, and there is a lot of uh, jockeying for position, jockeying for dollars, um, marketing themselves, um, it's not always the group or the organization has the best evidence of outcomes, it's the group that can make the best sales pitch for the dollars. When you look at organizations like Cancer Care, what they have actually done is they've put the responsibility, authority and funding umbrella under one agency that has <laughs> the mandate to do the work and to show the results. In mental health, we have not done that. And I, I don't think you can ride off on 47 different horses at the same time and get to the same place at the same time. It's, it's just not possible. I think somebody, and this is a government responsibility, frankly, has to take, uh, and it's a tough step, but I think it has to be done. Okay, there's going to be uh, authority. There's going to be responsibility. We're going to look at outcomes, not outputs and the funding will flow in this, this manner. And what you do has to be done based on best available evidence, not because your staff just happen to like doing it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, that takes guts, that takes commitment, that is difficult to do, but that's why we elect people to parliament <laughs> to make those difficult decisions. Yeah. Well, I wonder if the landscape uh, might be right for something like that. Um, just given the government's um, connection to mental health and mental illness, um, it's funny that the federal government. well, the federal government, yeah, because yeah, you mentioned the federal government has a role to play in this as well. And uh, it wasn't that long ago that you and Justin Trudeau, before he was prime minister, actually participated in a documentary uh -huh. for Ontario Shores on adolescent mental health. Um, he has uh, he in particular, uh, he's just one man in government, but I mean the Prime Minister has a connection to mental health. Um, certainly the current government has more of a uh, seem to have it higher on their priority list, mental health than maybe the previous one. Is the landscape finally here that maybe we can start digging and start building something in the next couple of years? You know, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for sure, very hopeful, that uh, this government, compared to the last government, will have more empathy and more concern for addressing this as an issue. But I'm also very aware that mental health, particularly at the federal level, is a, a major political issue. I mean, the pro health is a provincial responsibility, and, and the federal government has a role to play for sure, but exactly how that role should be discharged is a, is, is a difficult question. For, and there's a lot of discussion at many tables about that way to do that. I think what is also um, hamstrung to people is that there is so much disagreement, cacophony of noise in the mental health landscape. There are people doing, as I said earlier, riding off in 47 different directions, 407 different directions at the same time. 
everyone's saying this is my way, my way is the best way, this is my way, no, my way is the best way. You know, uh, pundits have written that we live in a post-truth era, which, which means that rational decision-making, empirical evidence, and scientific data is, is shrewd on the basis of how I feel. So if I feel that this is the right thing, then it means it is the right thing. And mental health area is, is an area of healthcare which is abundantly served by how I feel this is the right thing as opposed to this is the data that shows us what the right thing or at least wrong thing would be. <laughs> and, and, and it's very, very hard to get a conversation going when everybody thinks that how they feel is right. Um, and it's very, very hard to get consensus if everybody mm -hmm. uses their feelings <laughs> as the marker of what the right answer is. It's, we really, I think, have to start at some basics, and the basics we have to start at, the first basic is that we have to ensure that what we do is based on best available science. And the second part of that is that we have to ensure that what we do is based on on fundamental values such as human rights. Mm -hmm. And if we can put fundamental values such as human rights together with the best available science, I think we have a way to go. Uh, I'm not seeing that happen in the mental health space, but I think it has to happen. And so as a result of that, governments frankly are confused. Mm -hmm. They don't know who to listen to. They're getting you know, 37 different groups coming to the door, knocking on their door saying, I'm doing it this way, support me, support me. Mm -hmm. uh, how do they make that sure. decision? It, it, it's a difficult role for them to be in. And I think that uh, we in the mental health area have to say, look, how can we come together on this? So how can we make an agreement that human rights and best available scientific evidence have to be our driving factors? Mm. Right. Before I let you go, I wanted to close the loop a little bit because um, we were talking uh, earlier about sort of um, the OHA and, and hockey and stuff. The OHL, but, yeah. OHL. So you, and you, you, you did a lot of great work. I mean, Teen Mental Health Org, people should check it out because there's so much good information on there that speaks in layman's terms, which is sometimes hard to find. <laughs> yeah. But you did a lot of work around concussions. And I, I'm surprised. I still, when I go out to schools and I ask how many kids have had a concussion, playing sports or whatever, there's usually quite a few. And then I always ask, like, how many of you played within the week? And all of them. And I'm like, are we making any headway in the field of concussions with, with young people? Because it just seems, it seems like we, even as coaches or uh, teachers and that, we kind of just ignore that important component of... of it's, a, it's, a, it's a really important issue. A really important issue. And, you know, we... we we focused on concussions as part of the things that we were doing because about 10 years ago, we realized I was seeing kids clinically who are coming in with depression. And when I took the history, they'd had a concussion. And all of a sudden, some light bulbs went off. It wasn't popular that no one was talking about it. So I said, well, let's put together some educational resources <laughs> to do this. And we did the first drafts. And then later on, we improved them a heck of a lot and did the second drafts. And we make them freely available to everybody. What uh, boggles my mind is now that there's tremendous more awareness, people still aren't using the resources. Mm. So there's this huge gap, we call it the valley of death, between the science and the information and its uptake, the utilization of it. And, and there I think the, um, the, the vector runs both ways. 
So, for example, on the concussion thing, when we first started, when we first launched the concussions, we worked with you guys at Ontario Shores. You guys have been fantastic. Okay, now you're helping people be aware. This is an important issue, important clinical issue. It's important for schools and for teachers and for parents and for coaches. We talked about Justin Trudeau. Justin actually did a, a, a video, almost like a video blog, but a video appearance because he was uh, tied up in Newfoundland and his plane couldn't get out because of the fog. <laughs> we, had a, we had a video of him we had it at the IWK hospital. <laughs> and he talked about the importance of this uh, to a huge audience. We had the Navy come in and the HMS Toronto did this thing about it. And, 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 and it was a great launch. And, and then it ended. Hmm. It ended. And, and when I look back, I said, what didn't, what didn't we do right? Well, maybe one of the things that we didn't write, we didn't market it well, but we're not marketers. We're academics and we're clinicians and we do our very best. Maybe we need to pair with a marketing organization, but then I don't want to be the same as a snake oil salesman selling stuff to schools. <laughs> right. Uh, we want to sort of keep a little bit of purity here as much as we can. And, but also I think there's the responsibility on the schools to look for the best kind of stuff. I mean, you can't just sit there saying, okay, we're going to keep doing things as we're always doing them. We have to start actively seeking for this kind of information. Mm-hmm. So I think the vector runs all directions. Do you think things like what the NFL is going through bring more attention, like when you see things at a pro- professional level when they're talking about head trauma? Or do you think people just think, well, my kid doesn't do that, even though kids get concussions just playing on the jungle gym as opposed to playing football? But do you think these are raising the bar a little bit? Or? Well, I, I, I'm hopeful. And, and, yeah. uh, uh, and you know, awareness building is not the end of the story. <laughs> Awareness yeah, no. building is the beginning yeah, of the, the story. story. Right. Okay? So now we go, like when, when I'm, I'm, I live in Halifax, and so we got a Cole Harbor boy, right, <laughs> out there. And, and when, when he, greatest hockey player in, in, in the world these days. But when he got that severe concussion, and you could see what impact it had on him for such a long time after, when he came back to play, we're watching him play, he wasn't himself. Even though he was back, you could tell he was a step slower. He was just a little more hesitant. Now, now he's he's come back. But how long has that been? You know. And so it's that kind of example which is fantastic. Awareness is really good, but it's got to be paired with the next step. So what I'm seeing, and that's fantastic, is the awareness starting to grow. But where are the next steps? Right. Well. We could talk a lot longer. I know you got a lot to do, but always a pleasure, Dr. Kucher. Oh, Never can catch yeah. up with you. Yeah, thank you much great. for, for you taking much. time for us today. For, for giving me a chance to chat with you. Oh, great. <laughs> Just keep going. Well, was it good? A that was good awesome. Number four? Yeah. Uh, as always, Dr. Kucher, very, you know, straight to the point. A lot of good insight into the to the health system and uh, where we kind of need to go. And, and so we always enjoy his candor, for sure. Yeah, and, and Mara, somebody that I had met previously, but very passionate about suicide prevention and the work uh, that she does uh, with uh, CMHA, which I guess the suicide, uh, the Center for Prevention of Suicides, a branch of the CMHA. So very good to get insight from, from her as well. And it's been a, it's been a good couple days here. We, yeah, it's been a great conference. Um, a lot of, lot of great organizations, a lot of great people, a lot of great vision. And, and hopefully, you know, these types of dialogues don't just come once a year in a conference, that we continue to, to talk and come together and look at improving the mental health system going forward. And uh, while we're wrapping up this episode, we've got uh, to look forward to our fifth episode coming up. It'll be our last day here at the conference. So uh, watch this and, and keep an eye out for our next episode. Will you be here?
You just ruined the end. <laughs> you just ruined it. You did. Thanks for tuning in. Visit mindvine.ontarioshores.ca for details on upcoming podcasts. And don't forget to keep the conversation going on social media by using hashtag Mindvine. Begins and ends with